Hi, everyone, and welcome. I'm Mike Bonham. Thanks for joining me for part one of a special double episode of What's Next Los Angeles. Yep, you heard that right. I am posting two episodes together featuring interviews about an important and highly watched court case regarding homelessness in Los Angeles. So after you listen to this one, please make sure to listen to the other one for a very different perspective. So homelessness. It is the biggest crisis facing Los Angeles. And for the past year, action and inaction on homelessness, progress or lack of it, has been getting intense focus, not just in neighborhoods, not just at City Hall or at the County Hall of Administration, but also in the courtroom of Federal Judge David O. Carter. Judge Carter has held hearings on Skid Row. He has made impromptu visits to encampments. He has called elected officials and service providers to task and to the carpet at all hours of the day and night. Judge Carter's style has been unprecedented and unorthodox. Some people have welcomed it and others, well, not so much. But what prompted all of this? It's a lawsuit. The LA Alliance for Human Rights versus the city and the county of Los Angeles. It has provoked strong reactions. In part one today, I am going to talk with Elizabeth Mitchell, the attorney who brought the case. In part two, the companion episode, I'm talking with Pete White of the Los Angeles Community Action Network and his lawyer, Shayla Myers of the Legal Aid Foundation of Los Angeles. They've intervened in the case, making arguments on behalf of people who are homeless. I originally thought that I could interview each side briefly and then pair the interviews back to back in a single episode. I, I was I was wrong. The conversations went deep and, and we talked at length. And since the issues are so important and so central to what's going on in L.A. right now, I didn't want to cut the discussions short. And since they represent two drastically different perspectives on the same case, I didn't want to do them too far apart. So I decided to release both episodes at the same time. Now, I am sure that there are going to be some folks who will be upset with me for not pushing back harder or following up on something in either interview. We had a lot to talk about, and I just could not squeeze in every thought, every question, and every argument. The truth is, I can do an entire episode on almost every question I asked. And due to the sensitive nature of ongoing negotiations in the court, I did not ask either side about the specific terms of a potential settlement. So, without further ado, here is part one, my interview with Elizabeth Mitchell. It was recorded on the morning of Friday, March 12th. Okay, Elizabeth Mitchell, thank you for joining me today on What's Next Los Angeles. Oh, thank you for having me. You bet. Uh, let, let's dive right in. I, I'm, there's a lot of listeners uh, to the podcast who may have seen a story or two in the paper or seen something on the news, but really aren't as in the weeds as you and I uh, and, and people involved in the case may be. Can you start by telling me what is the LA Alliance and and why file this lawsuit? Sure. Um, so it's it's literally just a group of people that are frustrated with LA it's, it started as sort of a skid row effort. It's now expanded to all of Los Angeles of um, residents, business owners, current and formerly homeless individuals, nonprofits, just like, I mean, like mom and pop shops, just really your average Joe coming together that's so frustrated with the city of Los Angeles and the county of Los Angeles and looking to make a change. They, they approached me 
gosh, a year and a half ago now, and we decided to file this lawsuit to really demand change in the way the city and the county are approaching this crisis. Well, it was an, it was an interesting dynamic. I mean, we, we've had a lot of lawsuits over homelessness in Los Angeles, and I, I don't know that the city of Los Angeles has ever won one. Uh, most of those have been lawsuits which have told the city what it, 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 it can't do in terms of homelessness that is existing on the streets. Um, what, is, what does this lawsuit hope to accomplish? Yeah, no, I appreciate that. So if you, you may remember, or you may not ever know, I was a city attorney for a dozen years. Um, and I watched these lawsuits come through and they just seemed to frustrate uh, the purpose. It, it frustrated um, any, you know, any of our elected officials really trying to get done what they wanted to do. It was like all of our elected officials just felt handcuffed to do anything. Nobody wanted to take any affirmative steps because they just were going to get sued, to, you know, about anything. And no matter what happened, it wasn't good enough. And so the goal that, that we had was let's bring this lawsuit to do the opposite, right? Let's do, let's let's ask for affirmative relief instead of just you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. And so it's, it it is a first uh, of its kind in the nation, as far as we know, to to really do that. But the purpose is really um, kind of the three legged stool. So what we have said all the time is beds and services and clean and safe streets. So you need beds, you need services, you need regulation of public rights away. You need all three of those to work together at the same time. That's what we're asking for. So let me just sort of acknowledge the elephant in the living room right away, uh, because uh, there's a lot of folks who have a very, there's a lot of folks who are very enthusiastic about the lawsuit. Then there's a lot of folks who are very uh, uh, jaundiced about the the alliance, who's behind it, and and what the intention is. Yeah. Um, there, there's a, a school of thought that says this is mainly downtown business interests, and their main concern is to get encampments off the sidewalk. How do you answer that? So I totally appreciate you jumping right into this. It, you know, it's it's funny because I think in some ways I wish that we were all the business interests because then we we were getting paid, right? Like. Uh, and there is no man behind the curtain here. We really are just a group of people that came together. Um, and so, and, it, and it's not. The goal is to address this issue holistically. And it is really funny because, you know, I think people try to politicize this issue and it's not. What the Alliance is offering is this kind of social compromise that's pissing off people on the right and pissing off people on the left. But then there are also elements on the right and the left and, you know, in between that people do really like. And so I think to me, if if you're kind of getting everybody on the fringes angry at you, you're doing something right. And that's really what we're offering is that social compromise. And this isn't some type of grand scheme. This isn't a cover just to sweep people under the rug. These are people that are truly, truly compassionate, as am I, working through these issues in a way that is balanced and that finds compromise for, for everybody, that is a solution that everybody can accept, both housed and unhoused. So I'll, I'll get into sort of some of the, the nuances of, of the arguments in, in, in a second. Let, let me just ask, and, and this may be a good sort of entry question. Your, your your website says that you're hoping to achieve, and you spoke to this a little bit just a second ago, quote, bed services and an obligation to use them. Tell me about the, the obligation to use them part, because that gets to, to be controversial very quickly. Yeah, sure. So I didn't know that our website still said that, but I'll tell you where that came from is from Daryl Steinberg. 
So he wrote a, a he wrote an op-ed. You may or, or may not remember this. It was in July, I think, of 2019. He said, I want to say he said like the right to shelter and the obligation to use it. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of the one-liner that stuck. And it really actually in many ways was the genesis for this lawsuit. And and MRT joined him in an in a an interview maybe a couple of weeks later and also co-signed to that specific statement, right? Um, so we started looking at that along with the Judge Carter method, as, as I think you've referred to it as, right? The Judge mm-hmm. Carter method in Orange County um, and what the compromise was there, which was sort of the exact same thing, um, beds and services, but also uh, regulation of the rights of way. And, and so when we say the obligation to use it, maybe we should rephrase that a bit, because I think that there's some thought that that means like people are being forced into shelter or something. That's never the goal, right? What you're not gonna this isn't prison, right? This is help. And so nobody is ever gonna lock the doors and tell somebody they need to use the shelter. That's not the goal. And if you look at at the Judge Carter method, what he's done in Orange County, as well as some other LA cities, Bellflower and Whittier, you have four thousand people that have gotten shelter without a single citation or arrest. So the goal is to like not even use law enforcement in this, right? Heavy outreach, actually very similar, Mike, to what you did the Rose Pinmar. When we were walking along there, right? No law enforcement at all. It's, you know, heavy outreach with social workers, with outreach workers, with mental health, and to really offer people these services and these beds. Um, but but the city also needs to have an um, an ability to regulate its rights of way. That, that, that clearly needs to happen. You see, frankly, places like Venice, places like Skid Row, that are in very, very difficult positions without the, the ability to regulate this, the rights of way. And so um, if I can just take a second to tell you, I actually had, so, you know, I started as a prosecutor in the city of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And I volunteered for a lot of these homeless court. Uh, and I think they still do it in the city attorney's office. And so what these homeless courts would do is we get together once a month, we would go to different places, oftentimes on Skid Row, and you'd have people that would come with 13, 20 citations, right, for sort of homeless related, quote unquote, crimes, Um, shopping cart, you know, owning a shopping cart, sleeping on the sidewalk back when that was a thing, um, urinating in public. And they would come, they had all these citations, and they, and we would take everything they had, erase all of it. And they and get them into some type of program. And it was such a beautiful moment for all of us. And I we would hug each other back when hugging was a thing. And um, and they would tell me it, it took multiple touches for folks to understand and to really get to a point where they were willing to trust the government, to trust these shelters, to say, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop this constant um, game, and I'm gonna finally go into a shelter, and we'll see what this is all about. And I see the same thing. I've talked to dozens of people with lived experiences, some of my own clients, uh, service providers that will tell me the same thing. Sometimes it takes multiple touches for a person to be able to have that trust. And so sometimes that does mean migrating from an area where they're no longer able to be three or four times before they say, let me just, let's see what this is all about. So that's the goal. The goal is no law enforcement needs to be involved, but there does have to be a regulation of right away. And there are people, you know, we can debate the numbers and percentages, but there is a constituency, and I'm sure, Mike, you hear from your constituents all the time, there are folks on the street that that want to be able to, to be there for whatever reason, right? Maybe they lack agency, mental health, or drug issues. 
Um, maybe they want to stay for various reasons, but they want to stay on the street. And, and that is not a fair compromise for anybody. It's unhealthy. You have increased victimization of, of individuals that are staying on the street. So all of that needs to change. We saw it being done very successfully with the Santa Ana Riverbed, with Whittier, with Bellflower, with all these folks. That's what we're going for. So l- let me unpack some of that because there's a there's, there's a lot there to to unpack. I know I'm a lawyer, uh, right? I keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> um, part of it, l- l- let's say, um, uh, the the city and the county were to agree, uh, either under the auspices of Judge Carter or not, to do the, the framework you're talking about. The whole premise of your lawsuit, the whole premise of most of the lawsuits that have been brought against the city and the county over homelessness is that the city and the county have failed. Uh, and, you know, and I've been pretty candid in saying, I think that, that, that structurally the city and the county isn't, isn't designed for success on this and there needs to be another way. But if the city and the county have consistently failed, um, how do you have faith that, that even if the intention uh, behind the structure you're talking about was there that that the city would implement it in a way that that wouldn't criminalize or that wouldn't penalize or that you know I, I think this is a big fear is that the, the city or the county will effectively say to someone on the street you have to go into this shelter or you either have to uh, get a citation or or move along somewhere else and the city and the county will do such a shitty job with the shelters that they will be unsafe and they will be unsanitary and it'll be a, a lowest common denominator. And, and given how poorly government has responded to this, that's not outside the realm of imagination, right? Yeah, no, I, yeah, and there's a lot to unpack there too. <laughs> I mean, um, yeah, you're not wrong on any of that, Mike. You're not. I, uh, I, I think that that's the, the purpose of having a third party supervising these. You know, that's kind of why having Judge Carter or whomever it, it is having that third level of accountability, because when the city and the county regulate themselves, as you said, they don't do a great job. Mm-hmm. And so when it, it's like, oh, no, 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 I'm making sure that I'm doing OK. Well, like, how do you know that you're doing OK? Because you think you're doing OK. Why am I supposed to trust that? And so when you have a third party like a judge or a special master overseeing it, where people can kind of go and raise these issues and say, this is a problem. This needs to change. Look at the terrible conditions in the shelter. Why would anybody go in the shelter? Or look at this guy. He was arrested. He didn't even, he wasn't even offered an opportunity to go anywhere, right? That's not fair. So when you have this third party, which, you know, the the judiciary does very well coming in and overseeing it, I think that's where you get the accountability that we all need. So um, I'll, I'll follow up on, on, on that with, with another question. But th- there was another part of what you said where you talked about um, the, the number of touches that it often takes to, mm-hmm. to get somebody to accept services. I, I, I certainly won't uh, dispute that because I've, I've experienced that myself going out and, and talking to people. Um, but there, there, there's sort of two approaches to, to the touches. Right? There, there's, there's one that, that, that says that, you, you, you need to sort of push people into accepting stuff and that uh, you know, law enforcement has a role in that because it, 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 it forces people to a decision. There's, there's another perspective on that, which says that one of the reasons you need so many touches is that people on the streets, just like the, the plaintiffs in this or any other lawsuit, don't trust the system. 
that they have been failed repeatedly by the system, that they've been brought to a crappy shelter or they've been brought to a, a, a system yeah. that doesn't work for them or that they've been offered something that just never materialized. So, um, you, you know, when we talk about that, it sort of leads to the discussion about service resistance. And uh, I, I hear about that a lot. It gets talked about a lot. I, I think what the other side would, would, would say, and, and, and I tend to agree with, is that there are so many people out there that uh, are desperate to get off the streets and the city and the county ain't providing that resource, yep. that that it's this constant distraction to talk about the exception to the rule before we've gotten to even applying the, the rule of everybody gets an appropriate uh, accommodation. Yeah. So I think the, the element that's missing there is uh, that what, what is right and righteous for the community as a whole and not just for the individual on the street, because we have been very clear about this, this social contract and this balance that needs to happen. So, and you're totally right. The government traditionally has done a terrible job. And I think people are right oftentimes to be skeptical of this terrible shelter or this flea-ridden bed that you're offering me. So so that, that skepticism is there and it is righteous. There's no doubt about that, which is, like, again, where I think that that um, accountability comes into place. But to, to allow somebody to just kill themselves on the street for a year and a half because they're skeptical is not healthy for anybody. It's not healthy for you, Mike. It's not healthy for me. It's not healthy for them. It's not healthy for the person that they're camped in front of or the business that they're disrupting in the meantime. So that's not really, that's not an option. It's not a healthy option for a healthy community to allow that to continue to occur because a person is skeptical. And so what we have seen, I think that there was a, one of these encampment to home projects happened up uh, underneath the 118, I want to say in Monica Rodriguez's district. And it took a year for Lhasa to have these constant conversations with people, a year to move folks into finally, you know, a shelter that, that was a better place for them than it was underneath the freeway. And like a, a year is too long. What happens in that year? How many, how many people in those freeways are going to die? How many are, are, are going to get worse? They're going to suffer extreme health issues, mental health issues, emotional, psychiatric issues. How many people are gonna, going to get to a point where they can't recover in that year while we're waiting for this to come around? And I just don't think that we have the year. There's no reason to wait the year. There is some incentive that needs to be provided for people's own good uh, because they lack agency as well as the health of the community. Yeah. And well, and, and the system doesn't give people a lot of agency in the system. You know, we had a discussion in council last week where I was I was pointing this out is that somebody can call 311 to report an encampment. Somebody can call L.A. Hop to, to help somebody. But there's no system for somebody who is unhoused to actually track their own progress or to reach out yeah. to a caseworker to fill out some of their paperwork and, and, and know, all right, yeah. I am three beds away from this. I mean, the system disempowers people who are unhoused from participating in their own transition off the street. Well, and it, and it creates so many loop, like loopholes that have to, I'm sorry, not loopholes, hula hoops, loops, whatever jumps that they have to get through. So I was just having a conversation with this with this gentleman. I'll call him John Doe, you know, for the sake of privacy. But I was just talking to him a week ago or so, actually, for purposes of this lawsuit to start gathering information. Because as you know, you know, we filed a notice to file a, uh, that we're going to file a preliminary injunction motion. And so I was talking to him and um, 
what he was explaining to me, you know, he, he became a homeless because he was addicted to meth. And he was, as he was homeless, he was in this meth-induced psychosis, which is a real thing. And there's a lot of people on the streets that are experiencing it as we speak. Well, frankly, a lot of people in Venice. So you have, he's in this, meth, this, this meth-induced psychosis, even when he's not actually high. He's still in this place of psychosis. And you have his workers that are telling him, okay, you, we have housing for you, but in order to get housing, you have to document that you are in fact homeless. Like what's he supposed to do? Take a picture of him? self in a tent or whatever, to document that you're homeless. You have to go to every single hospital that you've been. You have to talk to every single service provider and get all of them to sign off. So while he's in this place of extreme psychosis, he's like riding buses around the city of Los Angeles, trying to go to like Cedar sinai and UCLA to get everybody to document all these crises he's had. And he's like, can you imagine the difficulty? And then those vouchers or that approval runs out after 60 days. So if he can't get that by, within 60 days, he has to start all over again. Meanwhile, he's he's dealing with this crazy paranoia and all this stuff. He's trying to jump off buildings and things. I mean, the story is just one person, but it could be replicated by 60,000 people or 40,000 people, whatever they're on the street right now. It's It's awful. The system, the way it's set up needs to change. Yeah, I, I think regardless of what what side of the litigation people are on or what their perspective is. I think anybody who's engaged with the, the system knows that it's failed. And yeah, you know, I, 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 the, the, the story about the, the person who's a meth addict resonates with me a lot as a recovering meth addict myself. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, although the thing I will note from, from my experience, I think it's important to balance this out is that there are so many people who get to the streets who are not addicted and that's where they become addicted. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. People start using meth because they need to stay awake to protect their stuff, you know? Um, Totally. And and also it, it, um, it reduces hunger pangs. Mm -hmm, Sure. Right. So, so, so you have to stay awake. You have to keep moving. You can't, you don't have anything to eat. And you're also frankly, you know, experiencing this trauma. So you're kind of self-medicating as well. I mean, it's, so the longer we leave people in the streets, the the worse they become for those reasons because they they do self-medicate through drugs and alcohol quite a bit. Well, and it's part of, you know, I've always said one of the biggest flaws of our system, and there's so many. I mean, I could do, you know, a series of shows just on the flaws, right? But one of the, the big flaws for me is that by and large, not completely, but by and large, our system tells people that they are not homeless enough for help. So someone becomes homeless. And if in their first you know, six months are asking for help, they don't qualify for anything. They haven't been homeless long enough. Their acuity score, you know, they're, they're, they're not at risk of death enough. And so in that time, you, you've been repeatedly traumatized. You've been, you've been screwed over or failed by the system. If, if you uh, have a, a pre-existing mental health condition, it's going to get worse. If, uh, if you try drugs, you or you may try drugs and then develop an addiction. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you've just had a horrible experience, and that that experience of staying out there longer makes it harder and more expensive to get that person off the streets. And it's it's one of the structural problems that that, that bothers me. I'll use that as a transition because one of the things that that gets talked about a lot in in this case, both by the the, the alliance you and your clients and by judge Carter is beds and is, is, is shelter beds. It's the, mm-hmm. 
the, the, from my perspective, the completely understandable impulse of how the hell do we get people off the streets tonight so they don't die there? Used to be three right. a day, five a day now, right? How do we get them off the streets tonight? But there is, um, th- there is a competing perspective and from a variety of circles that says that shelter beds are the wrong approach because they're as expensive, if not more so than housing. And it locks people into warehousing. Um, how do you respond to that? So it's interesting because I've had these conversations with the lawyers that I think that you're going to be talking to separately. And I you know, would love to continue having these conversations. And we do frequently. Um, so, so there are different ways to talk about this. So the, the, and there's, and I want to be very careful to talk about separate silos of things, right? There's permanent supportive housing. And then there's like affordable housing, right? Permanent housing, that's just affordable housing and then permanent supportive housing. And those are very separate things. So my understanding and what, like I'll speak specifically for the intervener's perspective since I've talked to them about it, but I know that there are people out there that are advocating for permanent supportive housing is the only solution. I don't think anybody, frankly, in this lawsuit, except maybe the county thinks now that permanent supportive housing is the only solution Mm -hmm. because everybody sort of generally agrees it's the most expensive. Only about 20 to 30 percent of people actually need permanent supportive housing. It takes too long. It's taking too many of our resources. People are dying. We need to move faster. Right. And I think I've heard those same criticisms from you, Mike. Mm -hmm. So um, so so I'll only talk about affordable housing and not permanent supportive housing. So. The problem with just the, just the focus on affordable housing. So for one, it's kind of been the focus for the last 20 years, and we, we see the results on the streets. So there has to be a triage, and there has to be an entry level, right? You need to, you need to and, and the Alliance is working on just a lot of these issues um, from a, a policy perspective. There needs to be a sort of beginning, middle, and end of homelessness. Right now, there's just like a beginning and middle of homelessness, right? There's no end. And so, and to create that end is that affordable housing. But if you only focus on the end, you're forgetting that there are middle parts to that. So for example, if we're, if all we're doing is paying somebody to go into apartment, I'm just going to give you money and this or I'll just pay your rent for you. So you have people that are taken directly from the streets and put directly into housing, like an apartment. I think the success rate on those people is something like 5%. Because when you have people that have been staying in the streets for a while, I'm not talking about somebody that just left their job. That's a separate conversation. But you have somebody that's been living on the streets. They don't have an ability to like keep that apartment, right? You, you get into fights with neighbors. You're not following the rules of the apartment. You are, are uncomfortable in an apartment. You're not stabilized. The issues that have caused you to become homeless or stay homeless haven't been addressed. So you talk to a lot of service providers and they'll say you can't Put somebody directly into an apartment. They need a place to stabilize first. Let's bring them here. They're here for six months to nine months to stabilize, to address the underlying issues, and then are stable enough to be able to have a higher success rate in an apartment. So that's one. The other issue is if you just focus on, on affordable housing and that's it, right? Which is what we've been doing for 20 years. That takes time to develop. And I am 100% on the affordable housing train. Like, and the alliances, and I say me when I'm talking about me, obviously talking about the alliances perspective, there needs to be more affordable housing. There's no doubt. And and one of the things that we're trying to do, I don't think it's a secret. And, I, you know, obviously there's confidential settlement discussions happening that I can't talk about, but um, is to, to how do we reduce the barriers to affordable housing? Because that's private funding sure. that's, that's building yeah. those. So 
those need to come down you know, tremendously. And that's one of the conversations that's happening. But that is a solution that's not a now solution. That's a two years from now solution, right? We can, we can work on it now, but those beds aren't going to be available for two to three years. So there has to be triage, right? And, and the, the uh, example I use quite frequently is like it, it, if you only f- focus on housing, just housing, it's like you're a surgeon fixing a guy's broken leg when he's bleeding of a gunshot wound on the table, right? You first have to stop the bleeding before you address the broken leg because bro- addressing the broken leg is not going to make a difference if the guy's blood out. And so that's what we're talking about is with shelter. First, you bring somebody in. They need to have, you know, stabilize, be in a place where they're comfortable and accepting, stabilize them, move on to the next thing. But we can't just wait for the next thing without creating the shelters in the first place. It has to be a process. So let me let me tease that out a bit, because I I certainly understand that. And, you know, I've been supportive of shelters. We've done bridge Mm -hmm. and I'm I'm looking at 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 sort of every model out there. you do need permanent supportive housing for some people, but you need a range of, of solutions yeah. for the other 80%, right? right. So um, for the same cost or less of, of, of shelter, I, I'd argue you can do a couple things that, that do come with the services to help people adapt. Shared housing. I mean, I, I know you and, and the Alliance have talked to, to, to Brian Alf and the folks from Self-Help and Recovery Exchange in Culver City, where people are in a home, a house, maybe six or eight of them with roommates in a communal supportive setting, which helps them make that transition or um, master leasing like uh, housing for health has done at the County. The people concerned have done um, where um, or, or, or project home key that model where people are stably housed in a setting very different than a shelter with services. Some of those are, potentially less expensive than and faster uh, than, 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 than shelter. It, it, is the conversation moving past just shelter and broadening to, to those interventions? A hundred percent. I mean, it's not, we're like an all of the above, right? The Alliance mm-hmm. is like an all of the above group. Look, we just want more, better, faster, uh, cheaper, better, more efficient, more effective. Right. So yeah, shared housing totally present. Haven for Hope is another one that has been really successful. There, are, you know, and I and I, what I like about Brian's model, the share self help model, is that it does come with peer bridging and counseling, mm-hmm. and so you have people with lived experience that are kind of working it through. And it's not just like because I've seen some of these models, these shared housing models, where they just like throw eight people in a house and are like, "Good luck." Yeah, that's not gonna. That's not helpful to anybody, right? You're not gonna have that transition. But I do, I totally, I think the, the shared housing model makes sense because there are, I don't remember what the latest statistic is, but there are thousands, tens upon thousands of houses that are available for lease in the city of Los Angeles. Yep. So let's take advantage of that existing infrastructure. Absolutely. Yep. Um, master leasing, I think definitely has its benefits. I think we have seen some of the downfalls of government being um, property owners. Right. When you look at like the, the, the like Nickerson Gardens projects and stuff like that, I think that there are some downsides to doing it that way. But there's nothing to say that a third party service provider can't master lease those existing apartment buildings or something like that. And having the lease guaranteed by the city, I think that's a fantastic model. So, yeah, absolutely. I'm not talking, I mean, I love the pallet shelter model. I think they're wonderful, but we're, I think there's room for all of it. 
think all of it can be done, 100%. Um, I, I don't want to get in. I, I know you can't talk about the negotiations going on, but I keep hearing the conversation about shelter. And I keep trying to interject the, the point that there are things that are faster and cheaper than building the pallet shelters, like the master really? leasing, like the, 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 the shared housing. Uh, I, I'd love to see us talking more about that, partially because, I mean, you look at New York City. I mean, New York City's had a right to shelter since what the seventies, since they had a lawsuit. Yeah. And most people think it's a it keeps people off the street, but it's a failed system because nobody ever exits the system. It's just an increasing yeah. warehousing. Um, and you know, as I said, I don't have faith that that the city and the county will do shelters right. Now, at Judge Carter's last hearing at the Women's Center. Uh, the, the big outdoor one, one of the, the many unconventional gatherings mm-hmm. Judge Carter does. Pete White and folks from LA Can uh, spoke, I, I thought, pretty eloquently about how shelter is a, a broken system and it, it it perpetuates locking people, particularly people of color, into that system. Um, how do you think a, a legal process can break that? Um, so the, your first point about, you know, the con- the conversation about shelter and that you want to see us move past shelter. And so I, I want to when I say shelter, I'm talking about all of that. Mm-hmm. I am talking about shared housing. I am. So maybe it's just a language difference. And I don't know what to what to call those things mm-hmm. instead, you know, master leasing or shared housing or whatever. But I, we, I, th- I think those are housing. I think that's the distinction. OK. You know, because it's, okay. it's sure. a roof, four walls, a door, you get a key, you know. Yeah, but I. Well, whatever. I mean, we can argue semantics, but that is also, uh, I consider all of that, all of those are options. And frankly, mm-hmm. I think they're oftentimes better options because they exist, they use existing infrastructure. Mm-hmm. I know that you have been a fan of commandeering, but I, that's definitely, the Alliance is not advocating for that. I mean, there, I think there are voluntary um, transactions that can take place, but um, yes. So, I, so we agree totally with you, Mike, that all of that needs to happen except for the commandeering part. That was my last comment. Um, so as far as the, the last part, people getting stuck in the system. And I, you know, I, 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 they're not wrong. They're not wrong. I understand and agree. But if you look at, and I love that you brought up the New York model because I've done a bunch of research on this. If you look at the difference in like, let's just use mortality rates on a high level because that's kind of the the end, right? The When a person dies, the mortality rates are kind of the highest indication of how healthy a population is doing. So if you look at Los Angeles, has 75% unsheltered rate and a very high mortality rate. If you look at New York, who has a 5% unsheltered rate and a very low mortality rate. So their mortality rate of their sheltered population is right on par with others of similar socioeconomic status that are housed. So if you just look at that as an indicator of health, you know, both physical health and mental health, which we all agree, I think, would, are related. Even though you have a population that is largely sheltered and not housed, and there are people that are staying in the shelter, which is the wrong way, and I'll address that in a second, you still have a huge, huge positive impact on both physical and mental health. And so when you look at that from a population perspective, that in and of itself is a reason to say, okay, let's just not wait. Let's do something now because look at how many lives we're saving. And not just, again, from a mortality perspective, but from a physical, emotional, you know, mental health perspective as well. 
So comparing those two is beneficial. But where New York has failed is exactly what you've identified is there's an inability to move up and out of the system. They're also doing weird things like renting $250 a night hotel rooms to people, right? And so they're what they're doing is just like, I think it's a $2.5 billion a year process, which shouldn't be the case if you can move people up and out of the system so that they're independent. You don't need $2.5 billion a year. And so I think that's where the second piece comes in is the real focus on addressing the systemic failures of the affordable housing um, crisis. And I, and, and I also, when I say affordable housing crisis, I want to be clear also a public, um, excuse me, a, a mental health and a drug health, a, a drug addiction crisis, right? Those, those are, those are absolutely issues that should be addressed, but to be able to move people up and out of the system, we need affordable housing. We need workforce housing. We need affordable housing. And then at some point, you know, moving up to market rate housing, that's kind of the continuum, but we can't just, as I said before, wait for those to come online. We hundred percent have to address the systemic failures both in the city, like the planning department. I have, you hear stories from developers that have affordable housing projects, right? Like 200 beds that have been waiting for two years to get approved by the planning department when it should be a buy right project. And for your listeners Mm -hmm. that don't know that, there are affordable housing projects that you should just be able to build by California law. You don't need approval. But because of the way Los Angeles interprets some of these things, they have to wait like two years to even get this project going, yeah. which shouldn't happen. So those are the kind of bureaucratic red tape issues that we're hoping to break through as part of this lawsuit. Let's all work together collaboratively, but in a way that you're also being held accountable, which is the benefit of this sort of third party oversight in the court. I'd be remiss if I didn't use the the comment about sort of the the, the breakdown in providing affordable housing if I didn't plug another one of my my policy proposals, which is which is social housing, which actually is public housing. Yeah. It, it's uh, very different than I mean, you mentioned Nickerson Gardens. Our public housing in this country fails because we don't invest in it. Uh, and we don't really give a voice to the people who, who, who live there to give any, them any sort of self-determination. Social housing, like they do in parts of Europe and, and, and Asia, is subsidized sliding scale housing, uh, uh, low income, middle income, uh, that, that is actually supported and holistic, not managed by the government. You have a nonprofit, like you mentioned, manage it or a community land trust. Uh, and it's a very different model because part of the problem with our affordable housing system is it's based on a system of uh, uh, tax credits and tax incentives, and they're putting together like 17 different pots yeah, of funding. It takes them forever. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's, 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 it's ridiculous. But um, I'll, I'll be doing episodes more about social housing because I really do think it's a, it's a way to, to, to change the system. Last question is, because um, I know you got to go, is um, this is a question I hear a lot around the horseshoe. The council horseshoe. You've you, you've sued the city of L.A. and the county of L.A. What do we do, or how do we engage all the other cities in the county? Because because what happens now, either under the current system or under the system that's that's being talked about, the city of L.A. would be doing stuff, but there's no requirement or incentive for other cities to do so. So as a result, now because Jones and and Boise are are applied differently in Los Angeles because we're more in the spotlight. Other cities are 
are are either either deliberately or effectively through their policies pushing homelessness into LA, and it means that that the, the taxpayers in LA, whether it's my folks in Venice or somewhere else, are constantly having to to sort of pay to to get it to work. So, okay, so um, gosh, what a great question. Uh, so. It is interesting because when we first got into this, the conversation from the city was like, hey, why aren't you suing all 88 cities? Why are you just suing us? Let's make this a regional issue. And my response was like, I wish we had the resources. Why don't you, city of Los Angeles, sue all 88 cities, which is what Santa Ana did down in Orange County, which was brilliant. Um, And then somehow the city said they didn't have the resources. I want to push back because I think that's crazy. Because I was part of the city attorney's office, and I can say, if you want the resources, you can find them. Not, not quite the, yeah. the the excuse I heard, and I can't remember if I heard it in closed session or open session, so I will not repeat it. But um, yeah. it still. I, I think I heard. I heard. I heard something similar, and I. Yeah. Anyway, there were a lot of conversations that happened, but moving past that, I will say, you know, and it and it is interesting that in Venice, because I'm, you know, I know, I'm sure you hear from your constituents in Venice all the time. We hear from your folks in Venice all the time, and I. I, we do believe, you know, maybe you and I can talk about this later, that that what the you know, the failed policy of containment and centralization that we saw in Skid Row is being repeated in Venice. Right. And that is something that needs to be scaled back. And I think that you're in agreement with that. At least maybe you are. Maybe you're not. Um, I'm in agreement. But, there shouldn't be containment in Venice. I vigorously yeah. dispute that there is a policy of containment in Venice. <laughs> well, I, yeah, the, it's the centralization of services, I think, that sort of creates that de facto. But in any case, the the what, one of the things that you said was crucial, which is, you know, other cities, either intentionally or unintentionally, because they are doing things that maybe they shouldn't be doing under Boise, are sort of quote, pushing homelessness into Los Angeles. And so my response is like, let's push it back out, right? For the for all the reasons we talked about today. And that what that does is it kind of has this, and I, you know, I want to talk about this in 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 the most compassionate terms that I can, but just on a high macro level, that's what happened in Orange County, right? Is all of a sudden other cities were like, wait a second, is this going to become our problem? Well, I don't want this to become my problem. Judge Carter, can I enter into this agreement with you? I love this. Let's go Mm -hmm. into this. Then you had this spillover effect that happened in Orange County. And then you had places like Bellflower and Whittier that said, me, please, we're in a, this is, this is hard for us. Can I please join? And I will tell you, there are other cities in Los Angeles, not in the County of Los Angeles that now want to come on board. They're talking to us. I know they're talking to the court. They're saying, wait a second. I see the success that we've seen other places. And we want to do the same thing. And so they've talked to us, you know, and some of your neighbors who I will not mm-hmm. identify by name, but some of your neighbors have come to us to say, hey, what do you think about engaging with us? Both like from the council level and from the uh, kind of groundswell grassroots level to say, yeah. how, how, how can we get involved? And that's what happens with projects like this is you see a proof of concept, what happened in Orange County and Bellflower and Whittier, and you start to say, how can we spill this over? And if people don't want to do it willingly, how can they be pressured enough because of the kind of spillover effect? So I, I, I know I said that was my last one. Let me try to sneak one more in. I'll try, okay, to, make okay. it, try, to, make it, yeah. try to make it quick. Is w- one of the things I worry about with the trajectory of the, the, the litigation is something that deals with a snapshot in time. 
and not systemic change. So I've been very mm-hmm. afraid of the city committing to spend X number of dollars or provide X number of beds. It may make a dent in the snapshot today, but we know, I mean, we're housing 200 people a day, 225 mm-hmm. are becoming homeless. It, how, how do we get a, a resolution that that deals with the constant inflow, the creation of homelessness, most of which, not all of it, but most of which is outside of the city's hands? Yeah. And by outside the city's hands, I think you're referring to probably policies by the federal and state, and then as well as, frankly, the county, mm-hmm. in my opinion, that's not doing enough yep. to stem that flow. And so that's part of why the county is is in this lawsuit is because you have the county that hasn't done enough in the first place. Like, for example, their um, their general relief is like $221, which hasn't changed since the 90s. Yeah. Like, who? How is that helping anybody? Two hundred. What do you want me to buy with two hundred? That's like a bunch of in and out, I guess. Right? You can't do a whole lot with two hundred and twenty-one dollars. You also have county's failure on the mental health um, aspect. So, so, and I have been just beating this drum. It feels like I'm yelling into a storm about this because the county has an obligation for the public mental health, and in a healthy community, a healthy community will have. 50 mental health beds, they're called IMD, 50 IMD beds per 100,000. In our county, we have 23. And that's a minimum of 50 for a healthy population. We have Mm -hmm. 23 in the county of Los Angeles, which I would argue we have a lot higher of a mental health crisis for a lot of the reasons we've already discussed. And people tend to come here for a lot of other reasons. And so you have the county failure of mental health, failure of public health. You have the county who is um, releasing folks from institutions directly into Skid Row, right? Mental health, uh, Twin Towers are all releasing directly into Skid Row. Yep. You have an ability by, and it's interesting, we spoke to um, a gentleman by the name of Professor Colhane. He's out of Pennsylvania. And he actually did a whole study on Los Angeles and how the county could help prevent the inflow. And two of his best recommendations, he had others, but the two that stick out in my my mind as I'm sitting here were subsidies directly to landlords for people that are about to lose their home for a period of time, which I thought was brilliant, right? So your people that are just about to be homeless, you can start paying landlords directly. And then the second is increase your SSI engagement. So, so have a program that works directly with folks to sign up for SSI um, like dis- like disability, um, so that they ha- do have that steady source of income and aren't reliant on like $221 a month. And so just between those two recommendations, and, it, and again, maybe a couple more that I'm forgetting at the moment, but his estimate was that your inflow of homelessness will go down tremendously. And I think there, so there, those are things that I would really put on the county to say, you county are responsible for causing a lot of this and you need to step up in ways that we are hoping will be wrapped in with this lawsuit. Well, hopefully that can be part of any resolution to a lawsuit and we can get the systemic change. I, I could have done 20 minutes on each of these questions. I feel yeah. everything is so rushed. Uh, yeah. We'll have to do this again. Thank you so much for joining me today, Elizabeth Mitchell. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, Mike, I really appreciate the invite. I'm always happy to talk. So maybe we can talk more for two days next time or something. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks. All right. Take care. And that is all the time we have for this edition of What's Next Los Angeles. Please make sure to listen to part two, where I interview Pete White of LA Can and Shayla Myers of the Legal Aid Foundation. 
It is already available on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you found this episode. And if you enjoyed this episode, it really is worth taking a listen to hear the other perspective. And if you happen to be interested in what I think, you can check out the show notes for a link to a Medium piece I wrote a few weeks back, arguing that the city and the county are just structurally incapable, structurally incapable of rising to meet this crisis. And what we need is a court-supervised consent decree mandating that we provide emergency relief to people on the streets, actually move them into real housing quickly, and develop structural reforms to address the ongoing crisis. Again, you can find that link in the show notes. Please go check it out. A quick disclaimer, no public resources are used to produce, promote, or distribute this podcast. This is something I do on my own for fun and for free with the help of Brian Holmes, my editor and sound engineer. Thank you, Brian. And thank you, all of you, for listening. If you'd like to suggest topics or guests for a future episode, feel free to email me at whatsnextlosangeles at gmail.com. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Mike Bonin. Thanks for joining me on What's Next Los Angeles. Until next time, peace and take good care.